something completely different. That's right, not one word about the Transfiguration today. Today we're bringing you instead an episode Dad recorded with Andrew Christensen of the Duth Protest podcast, which brings the theology of the 16th century reformers, Lutheran, Anglican, and Reformed to today's issues. And alas, Marxism is still an issue today. Dad talks in particular about how Karl Marx interpreted and used Luther for his own purposes. You will be both enlightened and alarmed. And now here is Duth Protest. Hello, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to Doth Protest, a podcast on Reformation history and theology. And I'm very delighted today we have uh, Paul R. Hinlicky, Dr. Paul R. Hinlicky, on the podcast. Uh, Dr. Hinlicky is a Lutheran pastor, an ecumenical theologian, and an author. Uh, he was the Tice Professor of Lutheran Studies at Roanoke College for 22 years and is currently the Distinguished Fellow and Research Professor at uh, Christ School of Theology through through the Institute of Theology. Um, Dr. Hanlicke has written and spoke on a range of topics throughout his career. He, he holds or has held editorial roles for such theological journals as uh, Dialogue, Lutheran Quarterly, Pro-Ecclesia, and 16th Century Journal. Some of the titles of the books that he has written are Beloved Community, Critical Dogmatics After Christendom, Divine Simplicity, Christ the Crisis of Metaphysics, Before Auschwitz, What Christian Theology Must Learn from the Rise of Nazism, Luther for Evangelicals, an introduction, and as well as the Joshua entry for the Brazos Theological Commentary on the Bible. Um, for a full list of the many books and articles he's written, I encourage listeners to go to his website, paulhinlicky.com. It's P-A-U-L-H-I-N-L-I-C-K-Y.com. Um, great features of his website uh, include a tab titled Sermon of the Week, where uh, offers free sermons and insights on the lectionary readings that can aid pastors and those with weekly preaching duties in crafting their message. And also on his website, you can find his blog titled Theological Ramblings, uh, which I especially enjoy. Um and lastly, probably the easiest way to get familiar with Dr. Hinlicky is to go search for the podcast Queen of the Sciences, Conversations Between a Theologian and Her Dad. That is a fascinating and very well-done theology podcast uh, by Dr. Hinlicky and his daughter, Dr. Sarah Hinlicky Wilson. It's one of my favorite podcasts, definitely in my top five to listen to. Um, and so thank you, Dr. Hinlicky, for being on the show. Um, that was kind of a long introduction, but uh, there's... Um, it was kind of selecting on what to leave out, what to include. <laughs> <And> so, um, <laughs> Thank you, Drew, for that very generous introduction. I'm happy to be with you today. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, um, our listeners probably you know I've brought up Dr. Hinlicky maybe once or twice on the podcast before just because um, 
uh, I've studied with him now for several years at at ILT, and he's uh, and very very thankful and blessed that he's my uh, my supervisor in the program. So um, so it's this is overdue to have him on the show. Um, and I guess uh, before we get into anything um, about well, what we're talking about today, I should say that is. Um, it's, it's some something Dr. Nlicky's written in the past. It was an article, I believe, it was titled um, "Martin Luther in Karl Marx." Is that am I getting the title right for that? Yes, uh, Luther and Marx. Yeah, Luther and Marx, right? And it's basically how uh, Marx, uh, I guess, how how what Marx uh, gleaned from Luther and how Marx interpreted Luther. Um, and um, I guess before we get into anything on Marx or either of them, I think it might be very important because, um, well, first I'll ask this. There's an interesting um, story, Dr. Hanlicke, you have from, um, I guess, your your younger student years in this topic. Um, and I guess in the pre-show conversation, you you had a, you described it as a vague ambition. Um, and I guess... Uh, if you want to give us the backstory of your interest in uh, Marx's reception of Luther. <laughs> so. Well, of course, I, I cut my teeth uh, on the cultural changes occurring in the 1960s. And uh, that included, of course, the civil rights movement, the experience of the assassinations of the two Kennedys and Martin Luther King, the war in Vietnam and the protests against it. And, uh, when I was a freshman at Bard College, I used to um, write, fill in the return address on my envelopes when I was sending letters home to my family, and I would spell out the United States of America with a K at the end, America, <laughs> in order to indicate my dissatisfaction with the, the political state of the United States in 1970. Uh, under Nixon's constant escalations of the war in Vietnam um, and so forth. And, you know, and that was an exposure there. I went to Bard College, uh, for, uh, an Episcopalian school by tradition uh, in 1970, where we had a real live Marxist-Leninist with a bullhorn exhorting us to march in Poughkeepsie against the war, to travel down to Poughkeepsie for protests and so forth. Um, and by the time I finished seminary some years later, in 1977, I think, um, you know, I I was in reaction against the um, the fundamentalist turn of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod in which I'd grown up, and I, my head was full of Paul Tillich and uh, and Rudolf Bultmann, and. Uh, I had just read Herbert Marcuse's Eros and Civilization, which is the chartered document of what we call today the New Left, the, mm -hmm. the post-Marxist-Leninist uh, Marxism, of so-called humanistic Marxism in, in Germany. Uh, after the working class went for Hitler, Marcuse said, no, we need a new kind of Marxism synthesized with Freud that turns away from class conflict to race and um, uh, gender conflict as its you know, primary focus. So anyway, all of this was in the air. You know what I'm saying? It was just mm -hmm. the air we breathed in the early 70s, mid 70s. And uh, I started at Union Seminary, of course, which always had a 
a tradition of being on the progressive left with the legacies of Niebuhr and Tillich there and so forth, and others, of course. Um, uh, but I was invited down to um, the uh, salon, the soiree, I, I don't know what to call it, that Richard John Newhouse would host in his lower Manhattan apartment building for the clergy affiliated with him uh, throughout Manhattan and Brooklyn and Queens. It was a big drinking party every, you know, couple of Wednesday nights or whatever it was, I don't remember. But I was invited and I went with another pastor to it. And so Newhouse was always gracious and wanted to get acquainted with new people at his salon. And at one point he turned to me and asked me what I was doing at Union and what I was interested in. And I told him, well, I want to synthesize Luther and Marx by way of Tillich. And he looked at me and with a perfectly straight face said, that's not very promising. <laughs> Did an about face and walked away from me, leaving me <laughs> hanging there. <laughs> now, was this back when Newhouse was a, because uh, I know in the in the 60s and 70s, he was, he was very much progressive or what would be progressive for that time and was was for the pro civil rights. And yeah. um, but of course, he later became the, you know, the first things founder, I think. Right. And he's usually exactly. seen as a neoconservative. Um, what phase was he in when you went, I don't know, I'm just curious when he made those remarks to you. <laughs> he, he was, he was in the middle of his transition between ah, those okay. two phases because he always claimed that he hadn't changed. It was the left that had changed. And, mm -hmm. uh, he was really appalled by the support for free access to abortion that mm -hmm. came, that was building on the side of the left. And, mm -hmm. um, he said, look at I was against the napalming of babies in Vietnam. I'm not going to support this quiet napalming of babies in the United States. I'm just reporting. That's how New Newhouse thought about right. his transition. Right. Um, well, I guess before we get into anything about Marx, um, I think it might be important because, you know, the name Marx and terms like Marxism are very charged words in our discourse. I mean, Marx or Marxism is never really discussed neutrally. Um well, you know, maybe in the academy, but but not so much in popular rhetoric. And I think one of the things that that uh, when you that you're interested in that you wrote on Marx is what you wrote about really brackets the noise, brackets out that noise. Um, or you in your writing, you you were intentional to bracket out the noise that comes after Marx and to focus just on Marx himself. Um, it's not an apologetic for Marx, um, but it, um, you know, it's not, I don't, you're not saying only if socialists and communists got Marx right, right? We know that refrain, but, but you seek to understand Marx on his own grounds apart from perhaps any later school of Marxism. Um, I'll start with bringing this up. For those with any basic understanding of where Marx was coming from with what is probably one of the most basic Marxian ideas of like, of uh, being dialectic materialism, this, um, this dial, this idea of this dialectic is, um, for those who know, is it developed out of Hegel. There's this trajectory from Hegel through Marx of this, um, and Marx takes this over in his own way. One of the courses that I know you've taught in the past, Dr. Inlicky, is um, is is at ILT is on left Hegelianism or left wing Hegelianism, and it's it I've it's not a course I've taken under you, but I I I know your familiarity with it, so I'm curious. Um, 
uh, you know, this, this left Hegelianism, this ideological strand that descends from Hegel, as I understand it, um, and includes notably uh, Ludwig Feuerbach. Feuerbach. Right. Marx had things to say about religion, yes, but perhaps how we sometimes associate Marx's views with of religion may, may reflect more does it reflect more of these later people like left Hegelians rather than Marx necessarily? Um, I think knowing about or touching a little on that, um, you know, Feuerbach, the left-wing Hegelians, how did, um, how did they depart from Marx? And, and when we hear about what Marx's views on religion, are we hearing more where Marx was coming from or them? Well, I think it's a continuum, um, uh, Drew. Um, uh, you know, it, the the continuum begins with Hegel um, historicizing transcendental idealism. That's the move to dialectical materialism, right? Mm -hmm. And so Hegel sees the whole course of human history as the as the um, complex dialectical that is sick at non back and forth, two steps forward, one step back kind of progression through history um, of the idea of universal humanity in union with the, the divine. Um, and that's the overriding uh, uh, self-externalization of what Hegel calls Geist, which can, very ambiguous term in German, it can mean spirit, it means literally in English spirit, it's behind the English word ghost, Geist, ghost, right? And it, um, does he mean the divine spirit in the Christian tradition, or does he mean something like the collective consciousness of mankind? You know, and so those are interpretive auctions that Hegel, I think, rather deliberately leaves kind of ambiguous. Mm -hmm. He um, doesn't want to get in trouble with these Prussian censors. <laughs> okay. Um, I'm so sorry. Let, I didn't mean just, to cut you off. Yeah, let me just say then, Feuerbach, yeah. uh, at the end of Hegel's life, most of his disciples then uh, in, from his own lifetime became known as the right-wing Hegelians. And they were the ones who wanted to interpret Hegel as Lutheran Protestant Christianity continued by other means. Mm -hmm. How do you continue with Protestantism um, after the Enlightenment, well, Hegel shows us how. And and so that was right-wing Hegelianism, which was basically a kind of strong uh, idealism. Mm -hmm. uh, Feuerbach is the one who blew the whistle on all this. Uh, in the 20th century, it was Alexandra Koyave who, um, who said that Hegel's phenomenology was the most atheist book ever written. But that was anticipated by Feuerbach, um, who was arguing, made the basic argument that um, um, all religious language is the alienated projection of the lost human essence. So if I am uh, crippled by poverty, I imagine a rich God who can enrich me. If I am crippled um, by feudal overlords, I project a god uh, who can be a, a knight in shining armor coming to deliver me. And you can go on and on and on through various notions of human oppression. 
interestingly enough, uh, the source material for Feuerbach was Martin Luther. He was getting all this humanity of God discourse from Martin Luther and saying, really, this is not about God becoming human. This is about human beings inventing God, right? And and so that was the essence of Christianity that Feuerbach wrote. Well, Mark, one of Marx's earliest written records we have is his theses on Feuerbach, uh, in which um, he said uh, Feuerbach's uh, criticism of Hegel is abstract and it doesn't go far enough. Um, and and it was in this milieu that Marx emerged as an outspoken uh, outspoken atheist. Now, one more complication before I stop. Even though Marx was an outspoken atheist, saying that there's no such thing as a deity or a Christian God, even though he was an outspoken atheist, um, he had a much more complex view of religion. You rem might remember the famous uh, theses uh, uh, from the Communist Manifesto, religion is the heart of a heartless uh, world, the soul of soulless conditions. It is the opium of the people. And what that means is, like a narcotic, religion gives oppressed and suffering humanity a temporary relief. It's a pain reliever, but it only addresses symptoms. It, 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 and in fact, if you get addicted to this opium, you will never find the courage to stand up and fight for your liberation, right? So it's the opium of the people in a double sense. It relieves from pain, but it also puts you to sleep so that you cannot activate your own humanity. And that's kind of the launching point of, of Marx's mature thought. So so it would be like, um, you know, someone... Morphine is is good for someone um, in critical last stages of cancer on their deathbed, but it, it's good for that situation. He would would he say uh, religion is good for even though I don't really buy it, I I don't take it seriously. It's not real, but at least um, it has this medicinal purpose. But the 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 main point is that we should get rid of these conditions in the first place. Is that kind of Marx's uh? <laughs> That yeah, that's basically that's basically the Marxist line. But Marx himself, I mean, he had this 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 compassion, this feeling for, this sympathy with, the the sigh of the oppressed that he sees at the root of religions. You know, now of course, the, the for Marx, the ruling class, the the capitalist class, uh, promotes religion because it works as a narcotic. You know, and so they they're patrons of religion but for nefarious purposes. Yeah, you, you so you mentioned in your work how, um, well, I first, maybe we should start with Engels, because you say how in comparison to Engels, um, Marx read Luther more, you say, perceptively. Now, when it comes to Engels, I guess we'll back up and kind of spend some time on him, if that's okay. Um, sure. He, you point out in in. Engels himself, uh, you know, who's very much, you know, uh, anyone who's read, uh, I don't know if it was Das Kapital or, or Communist Manifest, he was the co-author with Marx on one or both of those. I, I'm, I've really read all. Yeah. Yeah, okay. And Engels tried to analogize the, his, you know, 
his struggle with more moderate forms of like socialism or social democracy um, with uh, Thomas Munster's misgivings with Martin Luther. Um, this is um, an interesting, I think, parallel he tries to draw between his own historical situation, the angle situation of being an ardent uh, communist, I guess, versus more incremental or moderate, you know, Menshevik types, if you will, if you will, of socialism. Um, it's an interesting parallel he's trying to draw with him and then, you know, uh, a situation 400 years prior with Thomas Munster, who's on the, uh, you know, on, on the side of, of peasant uprising and he's the radical reformer and Luther's the, 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 the one who's not, who's trying to say like, you know, let's, let's, let's calm it, calm down a little bit here. Um, you know, Munster being the true radical and Luther being the mere upholder of the status quo is, you know, I is um so where does Engel go wrong there though? Is um with because he call what does he call Luther a lackey of the princes? Uh, yeah. Where where is Engel's really mistaken though when it comes to um what what well not just with Luther but why would this not be a proper analogy? Yeah, I guess there's many reasons why this wouldn't be a proper analogy for him to make, but. But I guess if you could speak to that. Sure. Um, let's first of all, just do a little contextualization here. What's interesting about Friedrich Engels is that his father made a fortune in the textile, I believe in the textile in industry. And Engels inherits all this capitalist wealth, which bankrolls his, um, his, um, um, his, um, his uh, career as a revolutionary and as a sponsor of Karl Marx's research. So there's a little bit of irony packed into that right away. I feel like that's the story for a lot of revolutionaries in history. <laughs> his yep. cap capitalist daddy paid for it. But I'm sorry, I'll go let you go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> but just an irony to be noted yeah. in passing. You have to wonder, you know, how did Karl Marx uh, survive? with his wife and family all those years similar story working in the yeah. in the muse, museum library in london you know um he was bankrolled by Engels, who yeah. had family wealth <laughs> um anyway Engels himself um came from a part of germany uh and his background was not lutheran but reformed and there's some slight indications that his hostility to Luther reflects those traditional um, rivalries in German Protestantism. Um, but that's a minor theme there. Really, what Engels did was rehabilitate the reputation of Thomas Munzer and begin the um, process of viewing Munzer uh, as a uh, a forerunner of communist revolution. Um, now, to do that, he has to, of course, do quite a um, hermeneutical job on, on Thomas Munzer. What's interesting about Thomas Munzer is that, first of all, he was a student of Martin Luther in Wittenberg, and that Luther was influential in getting Thomas Munzer his first call as a pastor. Mm -hmm. So Luther regarded Munzer as a disciple, and somehow Munzer came under the influence of Nicholas Storch and others of these early spiritualists who were basically with the message that new visitations of the spirit 
would supersede traditional reading of the Bible, mm. indeed would supersede reading the Bible itself in some ways. And Munzer became convinced through this immediate experience of the Spirit, so claimed, um, that he was had an insight into the real uh, storyline of Scripture, which was violent revolution against the uh, feudal overlords. And, you know, we can see in the anti-imperialist themes in the Bible where um, um, Munzer might have gotten this line of thought, but Engels was lifting this up. So the heart of religion is not even the sigh of the oppressed in a heartless world. The heart of religion is agitation for the violent overthrow of the oppressor class. Mm. And so Munzer became convinced, and Engels was arguing in his book, The Peasants' War in Germany, that this is the first rumblings of what would to come as the communist revolution. I think, wow. like I've explained, uh, it requires quite a makeover of the historical Thomas Munzer. Right, yeah. Um, and, you know, you you say Marx read him, you know, was... I guess really pierced to the heart of what Luther of of writings of Luther, um, better than what than what, um, better than how Engels uh, perhaps read the Luther at yeah. least the situation of Munster Luther. Um, Marx right. took um a special interest in a particular writing of Luther in fifteen twenty four. Often known, I think it's often known as trade and usury, or is it commerce yeah. and Trade and usury, yeah. Usury, um, and you know, you and I guess the that term needs to find because because I um I went back to Luther's works and I read this um writing, you know, this writing that Marx um uh seemed to resonate a lot. This writing from Luther, usury, usury, the term at least today is defined as lending money and charging like an unreasonable rate of interest. You know, one that someone could say is like immoral, um. I don't know. It, it seemed to me like that was uh, maybe not exactly, but close to the definition of what Luther of of the usury that Luther is writing against. But you know, it, I found it fascinating to to go back and read that. I guess it was a treatise because uh, um, Luther's living in a period of history that is really the dawn of capitalism, and it's it maybe if, even if it's fair to even say that yet. And um, but the landscape is changing. Um, and the nature of trade is expanding in new directions and that it was thought necessary to make money off of interest in order for this to even work. And I guess my question was like, what in in this 1524 work where Luther is tackling this topic um, of usury and, and by usury, does he mean like any kind of charging of interest or um, is it really just uh, against um you know, unfair lending. Um, I'm just wondering, yeah. Uh, yeah, what I think what, that, you know, of course, nowadays we would talk about something like predatory lending, you know, yeah. something along those lines. Um, but I, I think Luther is actually um, rather more radical about this than that. I, he thinks any kind of lending is wrong for a Christian. Yeah, that's... give them their cloak, uh, uh, lend without ex expectation of return. He takes those words of Jesus about self-giving and 
possession-giving love of the neighbor in need, quite literally. Um, and um, he thinks that this is a categorical obligation on all Christians. So, you know, he's not very good if you're looking for a representative of early capitalism. <laughs> no, or, he's not. <laughs> or early, early, you know, and, you know, of course, we have to, this is what's so um, hermeneutically complex here. You have to understand Luther in the context of his own times on a practical policy issue like usury, right? Uh, and he doesn't like the accumulation of capital. He doesn't think that uh, making money uh, off of money through interest is productive in any sense. Now, he's probably empirically wrong about that, but that's what he thinks. He thinks that right. there's nothing productive about um, – and production matters to him because that's how you the economy provides goods and services to neighbors in need. Right. And so you're exploiting the basic economic relationships of life on the earth if you start charging any kind of interest on money. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that Luther is, uh, you know, a late medievalist in this respect. He's not an early modernist. Yeah, I found that it, um, it was one of the, it, it's so unlike most of the writings we read from Luther, which are usually lectures on like scripture or sermons um you know and he does you know he will write the occasional treatise or you know on the occasion that calls for it but you know i i found it interesting i i it seemed to me that luther had um yeah like you said that understanding that's very conditioned by the time he lived um i thought it was interesting that this was like the transition period from uh, mercantilism to capitalism okay. and also he isn't so much speaking from the standpoint of like an economic professor, obviously certainly not a modern one, but from, but as a Christian pastor. And so he's, um, but, you know, for instance, there's a line in there where he says, um, how few merchants would be and how, and oh, how trade would decline, you know, if, if people were to realize that the primary and only reason for selling anything or for selling any good is to serve one's neighbor. And I, so I guess it, um, mm -hmm. I, it, I'll confess, it seems that, you know, it, it, Luther just seemed a little bit crude and <laughs> like it just his his understanding of things and maybe it's easy from my point in time later on uh, in history to to see just as kind of simplistic and, and crude his understanding of like how the economies work but you know maybe Luther's onto something because we're seeing now I mean nowadays from both the left and the right we're seeing critiques of criticism of NAFTA or like how globalized trade has reaped havoc in regards to certain things uh, just as much, or if not more, you could argue that it's reaped benefits in regard to others. So, so maybe Luther was being prophetic or touching on something very real. Well, sure. Uh, I think you that know. you can, uh, what you can ethically generalize from Luther's tirades, and it wasn't just this treatise drew in 1524, uh, Luther repeatedly published on the theme of usury and repeatedly called on pastors to preach against usury throughout his entire life. So mm -hmm. this was not a Johnny one note for him. He sang this song all through his uh, career. Um, but I think what you can generalize from it theologically is that economic justice, however, we are going to empirically uh, flush that out and, and philosophically and theologically uh, understand those terms, economic justice. And I think there's a lot of questions here 
um, right? But the topic of economic justice is a matter of vital Christian concern and social responsibility. I think that's which, and you, and also the suspicion that the rich and the powerful will use their um, power to uh, make the rich richer and the poor poorer. Mm -hmm. uh, and that that's just built in structurally to the dynamics of, of wealth accumulation. And that's what Luther finds ethically intolerable. Mm -hmm. If you are wealthy, it's because God has blessed you. And if God has blessed you, it's in order for you to be a blessing to others and not to build a bigger barn to store your goods, you fool. This night your soul will be taken from you. And then what will happen to your bigger barn with all your goods? I mean, that's Luther's that's Luther's attitude towards questions of economic justice. Um, and I think that's what Marx really uh, I take, seizes a hold of. Mm -hmm. He seizes a hold of Luther's, I think he calls it something like his uh, his naive polemic against economic exploitation. And and he appreciates Luther's railing against economic exploitation as an actual spiritual precedent uh, to his own analysis of 19th century industrialism slash capitalism. You know, Marx had, um, you know, the I, I want to ask you more about like how what was it in uh, particular that 1524 um, writing that um, Marx found so helpful, but I think you know you, Marx had the realization of of history um, as as a dialectical process, um, which for him was was manifest in class struggle. I know that dialectic was something different for Hegel, but there there is struggle for an ultimate. And, and you say that Marx is Marx, whether he knows it or not, is indebted to the biblical narrative um, because of. Or, that perhaps is where he there is because there is a tele, teleology here right this right. um this idea that history is going somewhere and, and uh so you say he's indebted to the biblical narrative particularly the apocalyptic understanding that we get from the bible that marx inherits can, can you elaborate a little bit on that yeah it's a it's a it's a, a kind of there's a tension in the bible i think between salvation history and apocalyptic um, salvation history would be the idea that from the beginning, God has a plan, and through dispensations, God progressively is realizing that plan from a Genesis uh, to uh, the book of Revelation. It's an ongoing unfolding of the divine plan, and somehow then that, um, for Christians at least, that, that plan is... Um, clarified and fully implemented in the event of Christ and what fo follows from that. And then that salvation history line, of course, then uh, gets secularized um, in Hegel. Hegel's philosophy of religion um, uh, is basically, or, in, or his philosophy of history is basically a, a secularization of that biblical salvation history that the dialectical process of history, um, which, you know, the cliche from thesis to antithesis to synthesis, which then creates a new 
thesis, which was met by a new antithesis and then a further synthesis and so on infinitum. But that, that, that process is leading to, for Hegel, the full incarnation of God in the consciousness, in the humanity's universal consciousness of its own unity with divinity. Um, that's the secularized kingdom of God in Hegel's thought. And something very much like that is further secularized in Marxism, Marx, Marxism, Marxist dialectical materialism. Because, uh, and the dialectic is quite severe, and this is what borderline, borderline merges with apocalyptic, because with the triumph of the capitalist class through industrialization and technology, the accumulation of wealth becomes concentrated entirely in the hands of the owning class, the class that owns the property. And the masses are pauperized. They're reduced to no powerlessness. They have nothing to lose but their chains. Workers of the world unite. You have nothing to lose but your chains. You've been stripped of all other loyalties. You've lost your religion. You've lost your nationality. You've lost your gender identities. You know, all of this has been uh, ground into the dirt and abolished by the juggernaut of capitalism. And as a result, the, pop, the impoverished and, and pulverized working class has no more partial claims of loyalty. And it can potentially then become the universal class. It won't be divided by religion or nationality or any other kind of partial consciousness. And when that revolutionary workers class arises to expropriate the expropriators, to take over the means of production from the capitalist class, then the universal humanity um, can, um, can be realized and we'll all have conquered nature through uh, industry and technology, but the, the uh, benefits will be distributed to each according uh, to their need from all according to their ability, right? So you have the worker's paradise that's now been created and humanity will be able to live the rest of its life eating grapes and writing poetry. You know, that's yeah. kind of the, the eschaton uh, uh, for, the, for Marxism the secularized eschaton yeah and i feel like the you know obviously the we we <laughs> that not to to uh rub uh you know marx's uh nose in the dirt but of course we saw history has played itself out since then and i guess um um you know the the uh secular utopian dream that never actually really came true but um something i do appreciate that you you point out is that whatever one wants to think about Marxism, I think we could both here acknowledge the failure, like I just said, the failure, the failures of realizing it, whether whether through the Eastern Bloc totalitarians um, who tried to kind of, you could argue, I mean, harness the dialectical process into their own hands, or if it's, you know, more even, or even if the if it was the more orthodox Marxist, um, you know, who 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 their their predictions didn't come true either um while maybe having some good insights that endured 
you know, ultimately they were wrong about how history has played itself out. But nevertheless, something, you know, you point out is that is that looking at Luther through Marx, Marx can be valuable in in our understanding of Luther. What does um? I think you 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 spoke a lot to to what Marx brings to light in his reading of about Luther and his reading of Luther. And there's if there's anything else on that, like um, feel free to share as well. Um, but but um, I mean he could. But even if Marx is reading Luther one sidedly or selectively, um, or or conveniently, he does recognize that. I think, as you point out, that Luther um, sees a problem in something, not just an economic system per se, but something much deeper, the the susceptibility of humans to um, desires that can create larger systems of injustice, if that makes sense. Um, yep. But they both believe in something that will overthrow these large, powerful dark forces. And maybe the answer for this is easy. Maybe it's not. I don't know. I'd love to hear how you describe it. Where do they where do they do they diverge then? Do they both believe in that something will overthrow it? But what what for them? I th where do they do where do they differ on that? Yeah, great. Uh, let me respond to a number of things you said there, uh, Drew. First, this um, um, I used to remind my students. I taught this material, you know, to college students for many years, at a time when. Um, after uh, 1989 and the fall of the Berlin Wall, when everyone there was a consensus, Marxist-Leninism has failed. It's collapsed. It's um, not credible any longer. Uh, the uh, philosopher Fukuyama wrote an essay called "The End of History" and said basically, Marxism-Leninism is discredited. The future of the world is liberal. Um, democracy and pre-market capitalism and globalization. Well, that narrative of Fukuyama hasn't played out so well in the last 30 years, has it? Mm -hmm. right. And history isn't over. And I used to warn my students that Marxism is always waiting there in the wings to make a comeback. And all it takes is Western arrogance, complacency, and naivete about the suffering masses of the two-thirds world. And I think basically we're seeing a lot of that happening right now, uh, right now in present history, that Marxism has is making a major comeback ideologically. Yeah. So that leads to the kind of in the article I wrote that you've been referencing, which is in the Oxford Encyclopedia of Martin Luther. And the title of the article is Luther and Marx. When yeah. I came when I came to that conclusion of that study, I asked the question, um, because Marx borrows Luther's moral outrage at economic justice and deploys it rhetorically in support of his own cause in the pages of Das Kapital, right? Mm -hmm. um, to me, that, that leads to two insights. The appeal of Marxism, I think, argue, urge, has never been that dialectical materialism is all that compelling a theory of economic and social development. The moral appeal of Marxism is that in a secularized world that no longer believes in the Christian God, the 
moral outrage sponsored by the Jewish and Christian traditions at economic injustice gets a new voice and form in Marxism. And it's really always been the moral critique of economic justice that drives the passions of people who affiliate with Marxism. I don't think that's a very, shouldn't be a very controversial thesis. Oh, no, I agree. I think, but for the people um, I've, I've observed who, who have um, the person here and there who really latches on to Marx and maybe is even a self-avowed Marx, you know, it's, it's always a, it's always very more, the very, it's a very moral um, vision they have. There's, uh, they're, they're not, you know, they're not um, really interested in talking about dialectical processes. <laughs> maybe some are, but that's more of maybe the more academic types. But the activist mind is is very moral for sure. Well, actually, Drew, the 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 dialectical side and the moral side are in some tension with each other, because if you follow Marx's dialectical theory, um, you can't skip a historical epoch. You have to go through capitalism and its exploitation in order to fund the development of the technology, which is going to conquer nature. And that will eliminate the the tragedy of humanity on the earth, all these millennia, you know, that it's been a war of humanity against nature. Nature doesn't care for human well-being. Human beings must conquer nature in order to have well-being. And you've got to, you can't skip like the Soviets tried to do, (laughs) or the Chinese have tried to do. You can't just jump over capitalism into socialism. And when you do, you create horrendous oppression and impoverization. And whenever, wherever, like modern China has become prosperous, when it jettisoned Marxist dogma and allowed capitalism to develop under state control in the last 30 years. Now, of course, Xi is trying to reassert communist control over the economy. But anyway, that that the, the point is, if you're a dialectical materialist, the moral critique of capitalism is moot. It makes mm-hmm. it, you, you can rave against capitalism all you want. You need it in order to get there. It's a necessary you know, step. <laughs> it's a necessary yeah. step. Yeah. Um, again, uh, if Marx borrows from Luther the moral critique of economic injustice, then I think, as I concluded my article, Luther, so to speak, has the right to make a theological critique of Marx. Dr. Hinlicky, what would that um, Luther's theological critique of Marx be, even though we don't you know, have him... Um, with he, he's not a contemporary of Marx. He's, he he left this mortal life before before Marx uh, entered this world. But what 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 can we what can we fairly say about um, how what and perhaps it's us what we can learn from Luther and and how we could critique Marx perhaps. But what would that critique be? Yeah, it's a kind of an imaginary juxtaposition, but I think uh, it's well grounded in the sources that um, Mar- Marx wanted humanity, the human race, the proletariat, the revolutionary class, to acquire divinity. He wanted humanity to become God without the creator, redeemer, God of the Jewish and Christian traditions, right? Mm -hmm. He wanted to be God without God. That's in a way, you know, a capsule summary of the demonic 
the temptation to the first couple in Genesis chapter 2, Secret Eretus Deus, you shall become as God, right? You shall become God. And um, and so, I mean, this is kind of a really uh, kind of a theologically basic. Mm-hmm. Um, God is God and we are not. God is creator and we are creatures. We are not little gods striding upon the earth. And collectively, when we try to become gods, uh, without God, we institute the most vile forms of human oppression. As my years living in post-communist Czechoslovakia um, demonstrated to me um, uh, the cynical statement I heard from so many survivors of the Marxist-Leninist regime, yeah, we're all equal, but some are more equal than others. <laughs> yeah. Um yeah, and I know you um, kind of be, be, uh, be before we move on to the to the next thing. Um, you taught in in Slovakia for what what kind of general period? It was was it toward, was it during the Cold War still, or was it shortly after? Or after nineteen ninety three to nineteen ninety nine, I was there for six years. And had it been like, were you um, part of a an effort of? Um, of launching or because because my my understanding is that they're probably depending on where you were in the soviet union there was there was theological study a lot there there a lot of it may have been underground there was there was the repression of it i don't know this situation of slovakia but i can briefly say say that um the strategy of the communist party in czechoslovakia was slowly to strangle the churches to death by limiting educational opportunities, by steering incompetent people into the ministry of the church, by co-opting the leadership of the church uh, in all sorts of various ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and when communist, communism fell after 19, 1990 and so forth, there was just this massive influx of youth into the church, all curious um to learn about the Christian faith, um, which had survived through the ministries of the babushkas, the grandmas, who uh, would secretly baptize the children and secretly tell them Bible stories and things like that. Mm -hmm. And so when I went there in 1993, um, and being an American and an English speaker, and also having a Slovak heritage, you know, these young people flocked to me. And um, they were so hungry to learn. And of course, in their in their polemical antithesis to the atheist Marxist regime, a lot of them had a very fundamentalistic theology uh, of a simple black and white either or. Mm-hmm. And uh, I helped them negotiate that in a <laughs> little bit more mature and uh, and and uh, balanced way. I think, as I tried to explain in this whole podcast. They were fighting fire with fire, um, perhaps. Uh, <laughs> fundamentalism with uh, one fundamentalism for another. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I something you said earlier. Um, I know we have a little bit of more, little bit of time left, and we'll 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 get going shortly. But I, y- you brought up a good point. You know, um, y- you were teaching, you were teaching and uh, and uh, around when the Berlin Wall fell. I was around too. I was pretty young. Uh, and, but I, I belong to a generation that's 
uh, you know, born towards the end of the Cold War. Uh, you, you could maybe call them post Cold War. Um, the Cold War is not really in like living our living memory. Um, but uh, it, and but we were of age and very you know um, conscious of the world in two thousand eight. Um, and if you know, you could say if eighty nine proves the 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 Marxist project uh, a failure, you could say two thousand eight uh, could be that equal critique of of capitalism. And so, I think that's a good or or global, you know, um, neoliberalism, perhaps. If you know, right. I know that word's a lo it's a loaded term, but you know, so I I I think that's a that's a very fair point to make. Um, for me, it's it's interesting because in the just the past few years. Um, kind of like when the pre-show conversation, how I'm reading it, it, you know, Nazi German history in depth for kind of the first time in my life due to just the, the direction my, my studies on with you have tended to go. Um, I've also, you know, read Russian and Chinese histories too, and more so in the past few years, cause they either weren't part of my program of study or, and, and you don't really get so much of that history growing up in, in a lot of schools. So it's, you know, I guess all to say, I don't know where I'm exactly going with this, but, um, you, you know, a lot of us are tempted to, uh, a lot, we're all, we're all moral creatures. And of course we do vote for who we vote for, uh, probably in large part based on our morality and, and have our beliefs based on that. But, um, it does help to know the full picture all the time and to know that all these systems and ideologies, um, have history, have long histories and, um, they have, they are they have they're all fallible uh and and so yeah i think that's um um a good point you you brought out with you know kind of the the fukuyama uh quote <laughs> so yeah um well yeah thank you for um your time dr inliki i look forward to uh meeting you with you again um soon and and uh thanks for coming on the podcast for this and this episode will be cross-listed uh with queens of the, queen of the sciences the podcast dr hinlicky both dr hinlicky's uh host or co-host together and so, um, and so we're very appreciative for, for us being cross-listed with them. Um, that's a great podcast and we're excited to, to have uh, this be shared with their listenership as well. So, uh, thank you listeners for tuning in, um, take care and we will see you next time. God bless.